Hello, and welcome to the review podcast over the Italian and Northern Renaissance, Age of Exploration, and Reformation and Counter-Reformation. I would suggest that you make an effort to have your study guide in front of you. If you don't have a copy, please go to the blog and download a copy now. Um, firstly, I will not be going over every one of the uh, terms listed on this review sheet. I don't have the time to do so in great depth today. Um, however, I will hit some of the big issues. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and get started. The Renaissance, first of all, you ought to be able to identify what the term Renaissance means. Um, it quite literally means rebirth in French. Renascimento would be the term in both Spanish and Italian um, to be reborn. And that should give you an indication of what the Renaissance is all about. It is not entirely new. It is a return to thinking uh, about the world in classical ways, uh, recognizing the power and the importance of the individual, uh, looking at the achievements of humanity as significant and worthwhile. This is a significant shift in the way that the world had been working uh, in Western Europe during the Middle Ages. If you remember the Middle Ages, we were talking about feudal political systems, manorialism as the, uh, the dominant economic uh, form. So it was largely communally based. Um, and you could see the evidence of this in artistic movements during the Middle, uh, middle Ages. Uh, artists worked together to create things like the Gothic cathedrals throughout Western Europe, um, but they were largely anonymous. Um, art was not necessarily signed works were not necessarily attributed to one author. Uh, things like, say, Beowulf, it's transcribed by one monk, and we do know the name of the person who transcribed it, but the story itself is far older, and we're not sure who the author is. Very often these things are compilations, they are communal productions. But the Renaissance is different. During the Renaissance we have an emphasis on humanism, valuing human achievements, valuing worldly uh, productions. Um, you might study the humanities, which be, would be a study in grammar, in rhetoric, which is the structure of argument, moral philosophy, history, poetry, um, and also religion. These are all human sort of studies. They are studies of things that people produce. Now, humanism and uh, individualism go hand in hand. Um, to recognize that humans are capable of great things also recognizes that individuals are important, that self-reflection is important, uh, that a person has value in and of themselves and not simply in relationship uh, to, say, their status, uh, their religious status. Now, all of this is a major transformation in comparison to the communal, um, more anonymous world of the Middle Ages, and there are many suggestions as to why this change comes about. Several historians have suggested that, in fact, um, the uh, Black Death had a huge impact on uh, medieval society, and what occurred was essentially um, a moment of great mortality on the part of most Western Europeans, uh, a recognition of the frailty of life, and after the death of nearly a third of the Western European population, um, there was an 
urgency of of action, uh, a feeling of of the necessity of the individual to do something with his or her life uh, to make it worthwhile. Um, in a lot of ways, we have this sort of reaction after we come in contact with uh, a moment that profoundly shakes us with regards to our mortality. We have um, a period of excess, a period of celebration. In a lot of ways, that's what the Renaissance is. But it also has an economic component. Um, prior to the Renaissance, during the medieval period, uh, your economic wealth was largely based on the production of a particular fief. It was agriculturally based. However, during the High Middle Ages, we have the establishment of independent guilds and the growth of a middle class. You also have the growth of a banking industry. And this is what truly transforms uh, the Renaissance for much of Europe. Banks existed for the purpose of being able to lend money. They weren't necessarily designed to be safe places in which to keep money, although that was a secondary, uh, a secondary service offered by banks. Instead, banks were in existence to be able to lend large sums of money to uh, companies, to individuals for particular reasons, and then to recoup that loss through repayment and interest. Now, these practices were necessary in order to facilitate long-distance trade. In order to trade across the sea or to trade over land um, through the Ottoman Empire and into Asia, one needed to be able to pay for a number of supplies up front. This required a huge amount of capital on hand, which most individuals simply didn't have. Thus, you would go to a bank. And because Italy was at the crossroads of both the overland uh, trade routes going to Asia and also the Crusades, Italy becomes a place of lending, of business, of commerce. And in particular, the city of Florence becomes known for its banks. In fact, the Florentine, uh, uh, the Florentine gold uh, coins were so famously stable. Uh, their banking system was so stable that most of European, uh, most European kingdoms adopted the florin at some point during the Renaissance as their essentially their their currency. Um, it was this gold standard against which all other uh, forms of currency were measured. Now, Italy becomes quite wealthy, in part due to the trade brought by the Crusades and also through the simple uh, attempt to trade with uh, the East, to trade with Asia. Um, Florence becomes particularly wealthy, and this leads to the rise of the Medici family. The Medici family are, they are not princes, they are noble. Uh, they are, excuse me, cancel that. They are not noble, they are quite common, but they are wealthy and they have powerful connections. Giovanni de' Medici, when he founds his bank, he makes the wise decision to lend to a man who would eventually become Pope, thus making the Medici's God's bankers. Essentially, they control the papal accounts, and this means that they are holding the purse strings of one of the most powerful institutions on the face of the earth during this era, and that is the Catholic Church. 
Now, the Catholic Church is known for its excess during this time period. Um, there is a string of popes known as the Terrible Popes. Um, this does not mean that they are incompetent uh, or that all of them were not devout, but there is a string of popes that has that have more concern with political strength, with monetary strength, than with um, strict adhe ad adhesion to dogma. Several of these popes, uh, Pope Alexander VI is a good example, and Pope uh, Leo X, were patrons of Italian art. Um, during this time period, during the Renaissance, we see a flowering of art, the like of which we have never truly seen again. Um, you will remember your Ninja Turtles here. You've got Leonardo, Donatello, Raphael, and Michelangelo, all of whom are fabulous artists. You also have individuals like Sandro Botticelli, um, Heronius Bosch. You've got Jan van Eyck up in, the, up in Flanders, uh, Rembrandt towards the end of this period in the 1600s. There is such a flowering of production. And what truly sets apart the art from this period, from the art of the Middle Ages or the art from other regions of the world, is the development of perspective. This is largely the result of Filippo uh, um, Brunelleschi's work, who was the architect who designed the dome at the top of the Florence Chapel, or the Florence Cathedral. Um, Brunelleschi understood how to create the illusion of three dimensions on a two-dimensional canvas. Um, this involves the technique of using a vanishing point, the point to which all horizontal lines should lead. Um, this gives the illusion that things in the back of the canvas or in the back of the plane are further away uh, than things that are represented larger. Things that are larger are closer to the viewer. Um, this sounds very obvious to us, but it truly revolutionizes art. Beyond this, um, beyond perspective, you also have the uh, betterment of the understanding of the human body. This is largely um, due to the work of individuals such as Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, both of whom, we feel fairly certain, attended illegal autopsies of corpses, thus allowing them to have a better idea as to how the body works. Um, being able to understand how the body actually functions and how it is all put together meant that the musculature that they demonstrated in their statues as well as in their portraiture was terribly accurate. Um, but beyond being beautiful, it was also useful. Leonardo da Vinci recorded some of the earliest and most accurate drawings to date of a fetus in his mother's womb prior to prior to birth. Um, while this is a somewhat gruesome sight for us to see, and very sad to consider that it was obtained through dissection, um, it was also terribly useful to students of um, biology to actually understand what was going on during childbirth, how the, the child lay in the womb, how it should be turned prior to delivery in order for it to be a safe delivery. All of these things were, were not necessarily known uh, to most doctors because autopsies were prohibited during this time by the church. There are strong conflicts between um, 
thinkers and scientists and artists and the church at this point in time. You will remember Michelangelo's rather pointed critiques of the church and uh, less than serious depictions of of religious matter uh, in both his paintings of the the Sistine Chapel and the Last Judgment. Um, all of these things are terribly important, but we don't want to get too far away from some of the intellectual movements. Um, again, please remember your isms, hu uh, humanism, individualism, capitalism. We are moving into a early modern period, a period in which there is the adoption of capitalism, where you have the ability of individuals to make a profit for themselves without the intervention of the state or any higher, higher authority. This allows for the development of non-noble people becoming quite wealthy and therefore quite powerful. Another major transformation of Renaissance society is due largely to the <clears throat> largely to the use of Gutenberg's printing press. Now, what made Gutenberg's printing press unique, because there had been printing presses presses in existence prior to this, is the use of movable type. By having individual stamps, essentially, that could be moved about in order to form new plates of text um, <clears throat> with relative speed, Gutenberg's printing press allowed him to print copies of books in numbers that had been unheard of before, whereas a hand-copied version of the Bible would be produced very, very, very slowly, Gutenberg was able to print copies of the Bible at a speed that allowed them to be relatively cheap for the time. Now, granted, a copy of a Gutenberg Bible cost in the day 30 florins of gold, which was three times what the average clerk would make um, in an entire year. However, it was far more reasonable than the 10 to 12 florins that a hand-copied version of the Bible would cost. So, everything in perspective. Now, the Gutenberg Press allows for ideas to disseminate very quickly, to spread rapidly across Europe. All of the ideas of the humanists, Erasmus, Petrarch, um, great philosophers of their time, are being spread on the printing press, as well as the ideas of people who are unhappy with the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church... Um, under the direction of the terrible popes, has reached a point of insolvency. Leo X, uh, the fellow who had the elephant at the Vatican, you remember him, um, rather famously spent the entirety of the Vatican's budget in less than a year. Considering how wealthy the Catholic Church is at this point in time, that is truly an accomplishment. But then, this is the fellow who painted uh, boys gold on the uh, on his assumption to the papacy in order to represent golden cupids, and then was unde undeterred when uh, the children died of, of poisoning from the heavy metals in the paint. This is also the fellow who uh, commissioned great works of art at incredible amounts of, of of expenses. Um, he is also the fellow who had banquets that had 65 individual courses. Um, generally speaking, economy was not a term that Leo X was accustomed to using, and it showed. 
As a result, um, Leo X needs to drum up some income for the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church turns to selling its most precious commodity, which is salvation. The Catholic Church begins to issue indulgences. You'll remember that indulgences are essentially certificates that give the bearer the right to essentially skip out of purgatory or perhaps a far worse punishment. Um, it was not necessarily just for the person who paid for the indulgence. Um, this salvation could also be given to ancestors who got themselves into a spot of trouble. So indulgences are a way for the Catholic Church to make up a, a rather severe uh, shortage of funds, which leads to the next issue. Reformation and Counter-Reformation. Indulgences are truly the breaking point. Now, there have been many problems and abuses with the power uh, structure of the Catholic Church going on for many years at this point in time, but indulgences are, for many people, the truly distressing aspect. Um, for Martin Luther, who was a monk uh, in the Catholic Church, this is truly his breaking point. Martin Luther meditates on the question of whether or not it's right for the church to sell indulgences, as well as a number of other theological points, and he comes to the conclusion that the church is wrong. He begins to preach to the effect that priests should not have to practice celibacy, they should be allowed to be married, um, that the communion is representative, not actual. Um, so the bread and the wine involved in communion is symbolic, not truly the blood uh, and flesh of Christ, um, whereas Catholics believe in something called transubstantiation, where at communion, at the moment of communion, um, the wine and the bread truly become the blood and body of Christ. This was a point of theological difference for Martin Luther. Beyond that, he also becomes convinced that individuals have the capacity to study the Bible for themselves without the aid or interpretation of a priest. This means, however, that the Bibles will need to be written in a language that most people can read, which is not Latin. They should be written in vernacular languages. Now, all of these things are rather controversial in and of themselves. However, when Martin Luther synthesizes all of these ideas and writes them down on a document called the 95 Theses and then posts it on a door to a church in Germany, this is drawing some serious attention to a protest movement. Followers of Martin Luther and other bre breakaway sects from the Catholic Church are known as Protestants. Martin Luther's followers become Lutherans, and they do have some of the same rights and beliefs as the Catholic Church, but the major difference is that for Protestants, indulgences are not acceptable. Individuals can read and interpret the Bible on their own without the aid of priests. Beyond this, priests should be able to marry. In addition to this, the Pope is unnecessary. And perhaps most controversial, there is the idea that a person might achieve salvation solely through faith, and not through faith and good works. 
All of these aspects are very, very controversial, but they do attract their share of followers. A fellow in Switzerland by the name of John Calvin uh, will develop his own breakaway form of Protestantism. Uh, it has many of the same elements of Lutheranism, but it adds something new, the idea of predestination, this idea that God has already seen every choice a person will make in his or her lives, and that therefore there is no such thing as free will. Now, this is the initial Protestant Reformation. You'll remember that the English Reformation is not based on theological quarrels. The English Reformation doesn't have any concern with the idea of indulgences or whether or not priests can marry. That is not what causes uh, the English to break away from the Catholic Church. Instead, the English Reformation has everything to do with Henry VIII, the King of England, wanting a legitimate male heir. You'll remember Henry VIII is initially married to Catherine of Aragon, who is a Spanish princess. They have six children together, but only one lives, and that is Mary. Because Catherine is slightly older than Henry and is coming to the end of her childbearing years, Henry is becoming increasingly concerned. Um, he petitions the Pope for an annulment, a declaration that the marriage never occurred. But the Pope, being closely tied to the Spanish throne and therefore Catherine's family, refuses to issue this annulment. Therefore, Henry VIII gets Parliament to pass something known as the Act of Supremacy. The Act of Supremacy declares that Henry VIII, not the Pope, is the leader of the Church in England. And as Henry VIII is the head of the Church, Henry can issue himself a divorce, which he does. Henry then goes on to marry Anne Boleyn, who gives him Elizabeth I. Anne Boleyn does not have any better luck giving Henry a legitimate son, and she is sadly, or not so sadly, depending on whether or not you liked her, executed. Now, you will remember that Catherine of Aragon's mother, or excuse me, Catherine of Aragon is Catholic. Her daughter Mary is Catholic. Elizabeth is Protestant. Eventually, Henry does wind up with the legitimate male heir that he had desired. Um, this is Edward VI. Edward VI will succeed his father as King of England, but he will only be nine years old when he does so. He dies when he is only 15 of tuberculosis, and he is not married nor has any children at this point in time. There is a brief blip on the radar where uh, Edward VI is succeeded by Lady Jane Grey, who is a Protestant cousin. Um, this is a bid to prevent Mary I from taking power because Mary is Catholic and Edward is Protestant. However, Mary does come to the throne. She is not religiously tolerant. She wants England to go back to being Catholic, um, and she proceeds to burn approximately 300 Protestants at the stake during her short reign. For this, she earns the reputation as Bloody Mary. Mary, when she dies without a child, has no choice but to pass the throne on to her sister Elizabeth. Elizabeth is Protestant, but she is very careful to walk a fine line with regards to faith. She passes the Act of Uniformity, officially establishing the Church of England, um, and essentially allows religious tolerance or encourages religious tolerance during her reign.
Now, the Catholic Church, because of the Protestant Reformation and the English Reformation, loses a number of adherents. Um, this is not simply a matter of losing people in the pews on Sunday. This is also to the point they're losing money, they're losing um or, or from a less cynical point of view, they're losing souls. More people are, are failing to be saved. Um, to this end, the Catholic Church finally acknowledges that it needs to address the problem of, uh, of, that, that the Reformation have made, made people aware of. To this end, beginning in 1543 uh, and, and continuing until 15, uh, excuse me, that might be 1545 to uh, 1563, uh, uh, there is the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent is a meeting that occurs three times in the city of Trent, which is in northern Italy, uh, featuring most of the cardinals and bishops of the Catholic Church. And essentially what it is, is it's a meeting to determine what it is that Catholics believe. What are the elements of faith? Out of the Catholic, uh, out of the Council of Trent, there are three major reforms made to the Catholic Church. Number one, indulgences are out. The Council of Trent decides that indulgences are not in accordance with Catholic faith and practices, and therefore are not valid, and the Church shall no longer sell them. Beyond this, they decide that priests must be educated in order to serve their parishioners. They must be able to read and interpret the Bible. They must be trained for their jobs. As a result, there will be an establishment of a number of different seminaries. Beyond this, there shall be a lessening of corruption, heightened, uh, essentially, administration and oversight uh, in the church hierarchy, so hopefully you will have less nepotism, and more people involved in the church who are actually in it for, I suppose, the right reasons. This also serves to be a reaffirmation of uh, what the Catholic Church believes. Um, they do not agree that the Bible should be written in the vernacular. They still believe that uh, the Bible ought to be written in Latin and nothing else. Um, to this end, the, earth, the, the church actually becomes more orthodox in a number of ways. Um, it gets rid of a lot of the frivolity that had characterized it during the early part of the Renaissance. Um, the Index of Prohibited Books is uh, written during this time period, essentially a catalog of all the heretical works that have been published that good Catholics should not read. Um, you also see a resurgence of inquisitions during this period, uh, courts that try people for heresy and uh, torture and execute them quite publicly occasionally. Let's talk very briefly about exploration and conquest. All right, guys, we just did this one, so I'm going to blow through it very, very quickly. You need to know your cycle of exploration. Remember that exploration really comes in five parts. Number one, you've got your explorers, uh, your people who are out there looking for God, glory, and gold, uh, people who are looking for passages to India or trade routes or just to see what's out there. Those are the first people involved. The next group are your conquistadores. These are the people you send out to subdue the native populations if they're there. Um, essentially, they're your, milit your military group. The conquistadores are followed by missionaries. 
now that you have a military presence, you need to make people amenable, essentially, to a prolonged presence uh, from your colonial power. So Spain is a good example here. After the conquistadors essentially stabilized the region, uh, you had various Jesuit priests and missionaries who would go out and try to convert the uh, the, convert the na uh, natives to make them Catholic, uh, to establish schools, churches, parishes, and, and church structure in a lot of ways mimicked government structure. Very often, churches stood in place of government, so that is established very quickly. Beyond missionaries, you have permanent settlers. Your permanent settlers will not come until there is a missionary presence. Permanent settlers are largely women and children families, people who are going to stay in this area for the long run. Once you have permanent settlers, you are an official European colony. Now, largely, we are talking about Latin America during this time period, North America, the Caribbean. Um, these are largely the regions we're talking about. However, there is also exploration and colonization in the East Indies, in Southeast Asia, the Philippines, all of these regions. Um, so keep that in mind. Don't just think exploration and colonization is only in the Americas. Um, it is also down the coast of Africa as well. Please remember what the encomienda system is. Uh, remember, it's not just a gift of land. It's a gift of indigenous people to work that land. It was supposed to be a protective system, one that encouraged the conversion of native people to Catholicism. This may or may not have actually happened. Uh, in fact, very often, the native populations that were put into these organizations, as uh, into these encomiendas, as a protective units were horribly abused. Now, you'll remember that there is an incredible drop in the native population, about 80%, um, and we're talking anywhere from 40 to even double that in terms of population of the Americas at this point in time. Um, about 40 million people, 80% of that gone in the blink of an eye, essentially, uh, on a grand scale. That's quite amazing. Now, what this massive, essentially, genocide does is it forces, uh, or encourages, rather, uh, colonists to look for other sources of labor. Uh, if your encomienda system is losing its workers, there is a need to replace them somehow, and slavery becomes a African slavery becomes something of a valid option in the eyes of many colonists during this time period. Now, there is some fancy logic going on in terms of why Africans in particular, why a race of people is more suited to slavery than another. These are largely theoretical, uh, sort of biblical justifications. Um, in my mind, they are nonsense. They are simply a way to explain why people feel it is okay to oppress another group. Um, Please know what the Middle Passage is. Please be aware um, just how painful that passage would be. Um, make sure you understand the term triangle trade. Remember, we have firearms, textiles, and rum moving into Africa in exchange for human cargo. 
Uh, these people are brought across the Atlantic as slaves, largely to the Caribbean and Brazil. Um, Brazil gets about 35% of the overall slave population. Uh, the remainder go to the Caribbean and are distributed out from there, uh, largely into the southern United States. And from uh, the colonies, you wind up with raw materials, particularly molasses and sugarcane, which are used to make rum. That goes back across the Atlantic to uh, Great Britain and the rest of the European uh, colonial powers. Um, please be aware of who Bartolomé de las Casas is. I have misspelled it here. That's not de las Casas. Um, it should be plural there. My apologies. Um, please be aware of where the Philippines are on a map. Um, I, I do want you to be able to find where they are. Uh, let's see. Beyond that, the Council of the Indies is established to govern the American colonies. Um, please try to remember your caste system. I do expect you to know who is at the top, um, who is at the very bottom, um, and to be able to recognize why it either succeeded or failed. All right. Study hard, guys. Try to get some sleep, and I'll see you tomorrow.